Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Have you been waiting for just the right job? Then welcome to the end of your search. Amazon has seasonal warehouse jobs in your area, and now is a great time to apply. You can start getting paid right away and work close to home. Applying is easy. You don't even need an interview. So what are you waiting for? Come join the team and get a great seasonal job offer today. Visit Amazon.com slash hiring. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. Back in Cleveland in 1935, if you were looking for a place to dump a body, you probably couldn't find a better location than Kingsbury Run. The run is a desolate scrap of land that traces the edge of a jagged ravine. From an aerial view, the ravine resembles a scar that cuts across the landscape along the east side of the city, eventually emptying out into the polluted brown waters of the Cuyahoga River. It was a hard scrabble place full of dirt and weeds and the rusting hulks of abandoned cars. It was also a place most Cleveland residents avoided, all except for those who were forced to live there. Following the Great Depression, the city's homeless population had set up an encampment in the area. A cluster of ramshackle huts built from cardboard, scrap lumber, and tin sheets. At night, from the city proper, you could see their campfires glowing dimly in the darkness against the shadows of the storage tanks and blackened factory buildings that lay further in the distance but you'd have to be crazy to venture through there at night. On a warm September afternoon, two young boys were on their way home from school, taking a route that led them through Kingsbury Run. They laughed and playfully shoved at each other as they strolled down a weed-covered slope known as Jackass Hill, when they came across something odd sticking out of the grass at the foot of a steep embankment. The boys got closer to investigate, then one of them gasped when they realized what they had found. They bolted in the opposite direction, screaming for help. They nearly knocked over a man who was walking nearby. He asked them what was wrong. There's a man down there, one of the boys said, and he doesn't have any head. This was the first time the citizens of Cleveland became aware of the serial killer in their midst, but it wouldn't be the last. Between 1935 and 1938, the murderer would kill as many as 13 people, and possibly more. It was a case that would soon attract the attention of one of the most famous lawmen in history, and some say, drive him to his breaking point. I'm Nate Hale, down in his luck in a tin shack with my trusty harmonica, and this is The Conspirators. police actually discovered two bodies in Kingsbury Run that day. The one the boys had stumbled across, and another about 30 feet away. They were both male, and they were both naked except for their socks. Each victim was missing his head and his genitals. 
A more thorough search of the area would turn up the missing pieces discarded a short distance away. The lack of blood around the area indicated to investigators that the men had been killed elsewhere and their remains dumped here. The second victim was the older of the pair, and his body was badly decomposed. Although there were signs that someone had attempted to preserve the corpse by coating the skin with an unknown solution. The pathologist believed he had been dead approximately two weeks, and likely had been dumped when it had decayed too much. The younger victim, the one the boys had discovered, had only been dead for three days. His fingerprints would identify him as 28-year-old Edward Andresi, and he had a minor police record for carrying a concealed weapon. He was a resident of the Kingsbury Run area, and he had a reputation for getting drunk and picking fights with people. They were never able to identify the older man. Perhaps the most disturbing fact the pathologist revealed was that both men had been alive when they were decapitated. The killer had bound their hands and feet with ropes, and stress marks around those regions indicated they had struggled greatly before death. Whoever had done it had shown a considerable amount of anatomical skill in removing the heads. It was for that reason police suspected the killer had been a butcher, a taxidermist, or someone else with knowledge of the human anatomy, perhaps even a doctor. It wouldn't be long before the papers dubbed the killer the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Police focused heavily on the possibility that the killer was someone who held a grudge against Andresi, but every lead they followed fell apart. Four months later, on a cold January afternoon, a howling dog would lead a woman to make a gruesome discovery. She lived on 20th Street near Kingsbury Run, and she was tired of hearing the dog howling, so she went out to investigate. The dog was chained up near an old factory building, and it was trying to tear open a burlap sack that had been propped up against one of the factory walls. A neighbor came over to see what was going on. The woman glanced inside the sack, and at first she thought it was a couple of hams. Then the neighbor peered inside, only he knew what it really was. It was a woman's torso and her severed right arm. The woman's head, her left arm, and lower legs were missing. Police used the woman's fingerprints to identify her as Florence Flo Palillo, a local prostitute. Once again, police followed lead after lead, but they all went nowhere. Two weeks later, the woman's legs and left arm were discovered in a dumpster. Her head was never recovered. By now, police were realizing that these crimes were related. Although they were still decades away from using the term serial killer, they began to believe these killings had to have been perpetrated by the same deranged individual. They also began to connect an earlier cold case from 1934 in which another unidentified woman's torso had been found dumped along the shores of Lake Erie that had gone unsolved. At the time these murders were going on, Cleveland's mayor had appointed a new public safety director to run both the police and fire departments, and he was something of a superstar. His name was Elliot Ness, and just a few years earlier he had been credited with taking down the most famous gangster in America, Al Capone. Now history has proven that Ness had probably got more credit than he was due. Capone ultimately went down for tax evasion, and Ness actually had very little to do with that part of his arrest. But it is true that Ness, as an idealistic young treasury agent in Prohibition-era Chicago, had assembled a squad of so-called untouchables, a group of loyal and incorruptible lawmen who proved to be a thorn in Capone's side as they busted their way through the gangster's lucrative bootlegging business. Ness had created much of his own mystique, as he always made sure there was a newspaper photographer on the scene whenever they made a big bust. 
but his fame and fortune had followed him to Cleveland, and soon the papers were cheering him on as Ness took a personal interest in the search for the killer. By the 1930s, Cleveland had developed a reputation as one of the most dangerous cities in America, and Ness, with his straight-arrow reputation, had been brought in to clean it up. Upon taking office, one of Ness's first duties was to clean up corruption in the police force. He fired numerous officers from the top down who had been accused of taking bribes and committing other offenses. He created the first Cleveland Police Academy to better train the new generation. He also introduced all the latest in police gadgetry like radio cars and wired surveillance. It was no wonder that a young cartoonist named Chester Gould would go on to model his own detective character named Dick Tracy after Ness. But Elliot Ness's legend as a reformer was only part of the story. He was known to take a drink during Prohibition, and he often bent the rules to get results. He went through two failed marriages before meeting his third and final wife, Elizabeth. But it was his experience with the butcher that appeared to mark the beginning of his fall from grace. In 1936, three more decapitated bodies would be discovered, none of whom were ever identified. Although one of them gained the nickname the Tattooed Man for a series of distinctive tattoos he had on his body. No one ever came forward to identify the man, though. The following year, three more female victims were found, the first of whom was found near the original Lake Erie dump site, the next was found in a burlap sack beneath a bridge, and the last of which was found decapitated and floating near an entertainment district called the Flats. None of the female victims were ever positively identified either. By 1938, three more victims would be found, and public pressure was mounting on Elliot Ness and his officers to find the killer. Then a break seemed to appear in the case when Cuyahoga County Sheriff Martin O'Donnell announced he had made an arrest. The man he arrested was an immigrant bricklayer named Frank Dolezal, who confessed to killing Florence Palillo. But it soon became apparent that the confession had been beaten out of him by police. The story he told had numerous inconsistencies, and it was clear he'd been forced into his confession. He later died in custody from what the Sheriff's Department claimed was suicide, but an examination of his body would show numerous contusions and broken ribs. The lead detective on the case, Peter Murillo, heard about a series of similar killings in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, which led him to develop a theory the killer was a transient who rode the rails between cities. So Murillo began disguising himself like a hobo and hanging out in rail yards in hope of catching the killer. This ultimately turned out to be another dead end in the investigation. Ness caught some major criticism from the press when he instructed his firemen to burn down the shanty towns in the Flats and Kingsbury Run, and for his police officers to arrest the residents. He had done so hoping to deprive the butcher of potential victims, but he had no idea how badly the newspapers would rake him over the coals for targeting the victims instead of the perpetrator. In August 1938, Ness made matters worse when he ordered his officers to go house to house and perform warrantless searches on every home for a ten-block area near Kingsbury Run. But what the papers didn't know is Ness still had a knack for working discreetly, and in the three years he had been investigating the case, he came up with something no one else had ever done, a credible suspect. In 1936, Ness convened a secret meeting consisting of the city's coroner, several anatomists from a local medical college, some prominent psychiatrists, and the lead detectives on the case in order to develop a profile of the killer. It was there that the idea was tossed about that the killer may have been a doctor or medical student who had fallen out of hard times, 
and had perhaps become a drug addict or an alcoholic. Eventually, Ness would receive tips about a potential suspect whose identity he kept secret even from his own police investigators. He hired a group of off-the-books investigators, including a marijuana dealer, and the group began regular surveillance of Ness's secret suspect. The more they learned about the man, the more convinced Ness became that he was their killer. His name was Dr. Francis E. Sweeney, although Ness would later have him picked up and interrogated under a phony name. Sweeney was a field medic in World War I, where he often performed amputations on injured soldiers. He began exhibiting symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia in 1929, and he was well on his way to becoming a pretty severe alcoholic by the time Ness became aware of him in 1938. In fact, rumor has it that the man was so drunk when Ness finally decided to interrogate him that the first thing they had to do was spend several days drying him out. Ness uncovered quite a bit of circumstantial evidence against Sweeney. For example, at one of the crime scenes, the killer left behind a size 12 footprint, same size shoe Sweeney wore. There's an interesting story about a vagrant named Emil Fronick that lends credence to the idea that the butcher may have been a doctor. Back in November 1934, Fronick was walking along Broadway Avenue looking for food. He somehow managed to find his way to a second-floor doctor's office where the doctor he met offered to feed him. The doctor gave Fronick something to eat, but as he scarfed it down, Fronick realized he was beginning to feel woozy and he became worried that the doctor had drugged him. He ran down the steps and out of the building, and from there he managed to stumble his way back to Kingsbury Run, where he climbed into a boxcar and fell asleep for three days. When he woke up, he decided it was a great time to leave town, so he headed to Chicago where he found work as a longshoreman. In 1938, Detective Murillo heard a rumor about Frank's story, so he went to Chicago and brought the man back to Cleveland and questioned him. Police tried driving him up and down Broadway to locate the doctor's office he claimed to have been in, but he couldn't find it again. Ness heard about the man's story and personally questioned him, but he later discounted it as having nothing to do with the case since he believed the killer's lair was somewhere downtown. Ness had a reason he needed to keep Sweeney's identity a secret. The man was too well-connected, and it would be political suicide for Ness if his identity was revealed and he was proven wrong. Sweeney was first cousin to Congressman Martin L. Sweeney, one of Ness's chief political rivals and one of his most vocal critics over his handling of the butcher case. Ness had Sweeney picked up in secret, then took him to a hotel where they interrogated him for two weeks. Ness called in some favors from his time in Chicago and had the inventor of the polygraph, Leonard Keeler, personally come to Cleveland with his machine to question the man. By the time he was finished, Keeler reportedly told Ness that he had no doubt Sweeney was the killer. That's your man, Keeler told Ness. I might as well throw my machine out the window if I tell you different. Despite the polygraph test and circumstantial evidence, Ness realized he still didn't have enough to prosecute Sweeney, so he had to let him go. It's not known exactly what circumstances led to it, but not long after, Sweeney committed himself to a mental institution, where he remained for several years. Whereas it's never been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that Sweeney was the butcher, it's interesting to note that no more decapitated victims were ever found after his commitment. One of the foremost experts on the butcher is a writer and professor named James Badal. A few years ago, Badal was giving a lecture on the butcher when he was approached afterward by a man who showed him an old black and white photograph of six doctors who shared a medical practice. One of the doctors was the man's great uncle, Edward Paterka. 
One of the others was Francis Sweeney. The practice they shared was at the corner of Broadway and Pershing Avenues. Remember Emil Fronick? The office was actually a house that the Paterka family lived in, and Dr. Paterka had converted the lower level to a medical office, leaving the upstairs for living quarters. From the street, you would have seen an attached deli. James Bedal believes that Fronick probably stumbled around behind what he believed to be a deli hoping to score some food and dumpster out back, and instead went up the stairs into the house where he met Francis Sweeney. Sweeney, as it turns out, had been kicked out of his own house by his wife, who planned on divorcing him for his erratic and often violent behavior. Badal speculates that Sweeney went to live above the medical practice he shared with Paterka and the other doctors. If that's not suspicious enough, right next door to the medical office was Rouse Funeral Home. A discreet ramp behind the building led directly into the funeral home's undertaking facilities, where Sweeney was believed to have access privileges. A funeral home's undertaking facility would have been a perfect place for a killer to dismember a body and drain away all the blood. Elliot Ness's public persona was tarnished by his stint as Cleveland's public safety director, and things were never quite the same for him. He left the city and took a job in Washington, where it was his responsibility to investigate and stomp out a rash of venereal diseases servicemen were picking up from prostitutes. In 1944, he moved back to Ohio and became chairman of Diebold, the security safe company. He made an unsuccessful bid to become Cleveland's mayor in 1947, and afterwards he went further into a downward spiral. In 1951, Diebold fired him, and he began drinking heavily and hanging out in local bars, regaling the customers with stories of his gangster-busting days. He fell heavily into debt and began doing odd jobs to make ends meet. In 1953, he got a job with a startup company that specialized in watermarking official documents to prevent forgery. The company moved its headquarters from Cleveland to Cowdersport, Pennsylvania to reduce costs. Ness moved there with his third wife and adopted son, and that's where he died from a massive heart attack on May 16, 1957, at the age of 54. A month after Elliot Ness's death, Oscar Fraley published a largely fictional biography of the former Treasury agent's exploits against Al Capone and the mob in Chicago called The Untouchables. The book became a huge bestseller, and it was soon turned into a hit television show starring Robert Stack, and in more recent years a hit movie starring Kevin Costner. Francis Sweeney died in a veteran's hospital in 1964. In 1970, Elliot Ness's widow donated a collection of the former Treasury agent's papers and other documents to the Western Reserve Historical Society in Cleveland. Among the items discovered in those papers were a series of strange postcards that had been sent to Ness over the years, detailing threats to himself and his family. Some of the postcards bore the return postmark from a Cleveland mental institution. One of them was signed, F. E. Sweeney. Paranoidal Nemesis. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. If you enjoy the show, you can help it grow by downloading it on iTunes and leaving us a review. We're also always available on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. We're also on Stitcher and the Google Play Store. Thanks for listening.